0: Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at the URJ Biennial in December of 2019. Welcome to the College Commons podcast and this episode where we will have the pleasure of talking with Rabbi Melissa Weintraub. Rabbi Weintraub is the founding co-executive director of Resetting the Table, an organization dedicated to building meaningful dialogue and deliberation across political divides. Melissa was also the founding director of Encounter, an organization that grows the capacity of Jewish people to contribute to solutions to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Melissa has lectured and taught in hundreds of Jewish communal institutions, universities, and forums on four continents. She was ordained as a conservative rabbi. Melissa Weintraub, welcome, and thank you for joining me at the College Commons Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Across political divides, I think some of us recoil a bit and follow the rule of polite conversation never to talk about religion or politics Mm -hmm. or money. Uh, But some of us itch for a fight, to the degree that that's true of some people, to the degree that there's an impulse to get stuff off our political chests, to to, to put it out there and argue. What do you find people are most uh, itching to fight about?
1: There are such disparate answers to that question, depending on context. And it's itself an indicator of the siloing, the ideological siloing of our community, just how different the conversations are in different rooms in Jewish life how different it is, where the fault lines lie, what matters most to the people there, what is the thing, the thing that they need to talk about. So it differs denominationally, generationally, regionally, um, whether we're talking about establishment organizations, so-called establishment organizations or more alternative spaces um, on the right or the left Mm. or in the innovation sector. So um, in some more Especially establishment kinds of settings, the conversation people might be itching to have is whether Trump has been good for Israel and how much that matters, if so. Uh, In a religious Zionist space, people might most need to talk about whether possessing Eretz Yisrael Hashlema, the full land of Israel, um, is... Uh, essential, important from a from a Jewish perspective. Whether we have an obli- a Jewish obligation to do so, in a small liberal arts college, what people most need to talk about might be, is anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, is the two-state paradigm still alive? Do I identify as a Zionist? So those are just really divergent things, depending on the space. Um, and when we're operating as the facilitator. And the designer of the conversation, but not the convener, the first thing that we're figuring out with an institution is what is what are the fault lines in this community that people most need to address that matter most to people. When we're operating as a, commun- a convener, we're thinking, who are the people that are never in a room together that need to get into the same room so that they can be pushing and challenging each other and um, in a way kind of uh, helping each other to see their own blind spots even in what matters to each other and how they're coming at things. Uh, There are generalizations that I can make in terms of some of the kind of evergreen things that come up again and again in terms of what people want to talk about, about the on the ground reality and what people want to talk about in terms of the American Jewish engagement with Israel. So in the kind of the conversations around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, often what people are arguing about comes down to a few things. Um, One is the extent of. Israel's responsibility and agency in relation to the current impasse? like to what extent does can Israel do anything? Are there any steps that Israel can take to move forward prospects um, for peace? Um, you know there's some who think that any way that Israel could um, uh, tamper with the status quo in this moment, given that um, many people in this camp don't think that there is a partner. Um, who gives any recognition to Israel and that um, any way of tampering with the status quo would endanger Israel would be naive and unrealistic. And as Danielle Hartman has put it in the Middle East, if you're naive and unrealistic, you get killed, right? Um, Versus others who see the status quo as actually a great danger to Israel, right, Right. who have different risk analysis around the status. If we sustain the status quo, then we're actually threatening (laughs) Israel's capacity to maintain its uh, democratic status. Uh, its its status as a Jewish and democratic state. Like we have to do something, uh, and we have to do we have to do what we can. Partners aren't grown on trees; they're made, and so we have to do what we can to make a partner or to be a better partner ourselves. So it comes down to questions of assessment of culpability. There's certainly a part of our community, and increasingly in the younger generation, that will speak a lot about ending the occupation, ending military rule over another people. And uh, sees, you know, great culpability on Israel's side. And then other parts of our community, as one thought leader put it, you know, we, we might want to end the occupation, but it's a bit like hoping for the tooth fairy. Like that is a, a kind of utopian vision. And That's Israel right. doesn't actually have any agency to to to. There's nothing that Israel could do. We could give them the moon. We can give them 20 percent right. or 60 percent or 80 percent. That's not going to bring peace. It's not really about the occupation um, as, right. as they see it. And that there's a related kind of argument about whether people see settlements as a primary obstacle to solving the conflict, um, et cetera.
0: So there's this bundle of topics around Israel, all of yeah. which are um, predictable, meaning I'm, I'm, I don't think any aware Jew would be surprised. Yes. That. Among the generalizations you can make. Absolutely. That this is one bundle of general. That's one bundle. The yeah.
1: American Jewish engagement will also not be surprising to those who are, are involved in this conversation. We found two entry points that um, are almost always the ways into what people most need to talk about. One of them is what role uh, and what are the responsibilities that American Jews hold in relation to Israel? What role should American Jews be playing? And the other is about the boundaries of legitimate and illegitimate criticism of Israel. Increasingly, there's a third. And it's really only been in the last few years that this has kind of risen to the surface. And that's about anti-Semitism. Right. So we and we, you know, we try not to set this up as a contest between whether people are most concerned about anti-Semitism on the right or the left. In a a kind of comparative way, because no one wins from that other than anti-Semites. Right. right, right. But almost invariably, that's actually what people need to talk about. Um, because uh, there are those who are really concerned about the climate for Jewish students on campus and in progressive spaces and think that one can't be an outspoken Zionist in those spaces without being turned into a pariah and that that is a form of Jewish hatred. And there's others who think that that whole way of seeing things is really a distraction from where we should be putting our focus Uh, which is on the rise of white supremacy and uh, amplified by our president as they see it. And that that is, uh, that's really the source of the greatest danger and threat.
0: Uh, Are you as an individual and as a Jew and as a person of conscience in a position where your profession materially impedes on your capacity to voice your own opinions?
1: In a sense, yes, although I don't see it as a great sacrifice. It's more important to me that the Jewish people sits down and has a really robust argument that I think I can help make happen that isn't happening nearly enough. That is a much, for for me, a, much, a better contribution of what I bring than anything, any way that I could put my line in the sand.
0: The proof of this itching for a fight. Here I call myself a Jewish liberal. We, we have been accused by the Jewish right of having been... Itching for a fight the minute Trump was on scene, and the minute he became president, that we were chomping at the bit and angry and wanted release, mm-hmm. and wanted to accuse and wanted and and I think that that accusation of us wanting those things is largely accurate. Mm-hmm. And I certainly you know in my kishkas I felt that too. As much as I try to be this honest broker, that was the spirit of my question to you mm-hmm. originally. And now I want to take a step back and hope for greater edification. And say, where do people approach your resetting of the table? Not itching for a fight, but yearning for conciliation and mm. hoping to walk away with something more than merely the airing of difference, but reconnection, reassertion of shared values.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you named a lot of the costs of the culture of anger and contempt and siloing that we're living in. And so many people are experiencing th- that brokenness and those costs. They're experiencing broken relationships. Yes. They, you know, there was a study in the aftermath of the 2016 election that found that 16% of Americans stopped speaking to a family member or close friend in the aftermath right, of the exactly. election. Right, th- exactly. That's what I was You know, it's it. staggering. Yeah, like, yeah, that's an sure. epidemic. That's 50 yes. million lost right. relationships if that actually plays out at scale. And um, and people are experiencing in congregations, you know, just total unraveling and falling apart um, around political issues in many communities, um, mutual suspicion and yes. uh, factionalism and um, and uh, and just, you know, an erosion of the health of their community. And some people experience a kind of loss of um, I'm not getting my thinking sharpened. I'm not getting challenged. I know I'm in an echo chamber and we don't learn anything from echo chambers in silence or not nearly enough. People are aware of not being politically effective enough. Uh, uh, ne- not nearly as effective as they could be if they weren't only talking to their choir. So all that, people are very aware of that brokenness in a way that they weren't, I think, when we started doing this work six years ago. It's almost like the problem statement we used to make at the beginning of our sessions is no longer needed because everyone just kind of knows Obvious. we're all swimming in the same muck. Right. And uh, okay, so let's let's talk about how to overcome right. it. It's not everyone is really on some level yearning for reconciliation, even if they're... They have enough rage about what's happening or fear, anxiety, all of which is very understandable. People tend to be relieved when it comes. Uh, In terms of why communities come to us, uh, communities come usually because they're in a state of escalation and Mm -hmm. brokenness and volatility and something has gone really bad and they didn't do the preventative work. So they have to do the reactive work Uh, or they've just gotten to the point they're avoiding all the elephants in the room and that's also creating brokenness. Uh, or, you know, sometimes we just can't even touch Israel. We can't touch all of these other things. Our social justice work can't move forward in, in especially reformed congregations. But what what I thought of when you said where are people yearning for reconciliation was almost something more spiritual, actually. Mm-hmm. And this is part of what drives me to do this work as a rabbi. I often in this work think of this line from the Yom Kippur liturgy, k'mayim av bot, we have poured out our stone hearts like water. Like there's just an element of, We're living in this kind of collective rigidity. Uh, It's like confirmation bias on steroids. Like we are just all so dug in and so entrenched and um, so just gravitating to the people and ideas and information that validate what we think and discrediting and dismissing everything that doesn't. And that rigidity is not a good place to be in. And when that opens up, you know, when we kind of melt, when we soften, when we, Realize that someone we'd written off is not who we thought we, they were. Someone that we had categorically dismissed actually has something to teach us. Helps us see a blind spot, expands our thinking. Is a human being with a complexity and integrity, even if we still object to everything that they think otherwise. Right, like there's really like a, a heart softening, melting relief that I see people experience again and again, and especially these days, liberals coming into contact with conservative thinking and Trump supporters in this way, you know, because there is so much vilification. We we brought a group of liberal arts students or people who had just graduated from places like Oberlin and um, Swarthmore and UC Berkeley and Brown to interview hundreds of people in rural Wisconsin and Iowa that had voted for Trump. And... One of the things that, ha- that happened in that work is people were taking in views on abortion and guns and immigration they'd never heard before. I remember one student who just graduated from Oberlin in particular saying, like I, I have only encountered the stereotypes of these views my entire life. I've never encountered the views themselves and I've never encountered the people behind these views. And there's there's really a recovery of my own humanity in doing that, even if I still strongly disagree.
0: Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars. Unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. What was the initial motivation for founding Resetting the Table?
1: So... I... Um, You're a co-founder,
0: right? I'm co-founder so, so with my your, husband,
1: actually. Okay, so this yeah. is your
0: story. This is...
1: This is my story, yeah. I uh, had been living a life um, for probably already about two decades of shuttling between a lot of worlds that were preoccupied with each other, but had very little contact with each other, um, and that... On, on, on Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in particular... Um, And seeing the ways that all of those different worlds needed the insights that each other held and were um, living in a lot of blind spots without each other. Um, You know, I'll tell one of of many possible stories. I was um, was with a religious Zionist rabbi who said, you know, if only I ever heard liberal Jews give any recognition to the holiness of this land, it would be so much easier to hear everything else that they have to say. Um, And uh, an anti-occupation activist who was sitting there said, if only I ever heard religious Zionist jews give any recognition to the to the people living on that land all of the people living on that land and their humanity and their rights it'd be so much easier to hear everything else that they have to say um that was you know an example of a conversation that just never happens or you know so rarely all happens. Too rarely. so all too rarely happens i mean now we've made a lot of rooms um happen with that that conversation in it um but i but just seeing the need for uh, us all to be pushing and challenging each other, as well as the the healing and rest- restoration of broken relationship and community that I'm talking about. Um, what really moves me beyond the spiritual things that we talked about is, is the need for collective intelligence. Like I really think that the Jewish people needs all of its intelligence to solve this conflict right. and, um, and through this conflict and through seeing that the extent to which we need empathy and recognition and understanding across um, across a lot of silos to be able to address this conflict. I came to see that on a lot of other moral and political issues too. So now I've come to see that around a lot of American domestic issues as well. Yeah. Um, how do we reassure people that they're part of the fold, that they're, that how do we honor people is in a way the heart of what it looks like to build sacred dialogue work in a congregation or in any um, institution or in the community at large. Um, and, A piece of that is about all voices genuinely being heard, you know, like that means educationally in speaker series that we have true multivocal exploration of issues that we don't presume everybody stands in the same place on reproductive rights and on abortion. Right. Which is a less uh, more neutral framing or on gun policy and gun violence or on immigration that we're actually presenting valid points of view. Robustly yes. and eloquently, without caricature, on all of the issues. So much of the education is done to um, just to convince people to support a particular platform, right. as opposed to. Uh, it really looking like ro- like the best version, the most generous right. version, the most eloquent version of legitimate, disparate points of view, non-prescriptively presented. Yes. Now reach your own conclusions. Now you're empowered to reach your own conclusions. Right. Right. And now we're going to uh, we're going to do the kind of dialogue work that resetting the table does. We're going to hear each other's life experiences that have shaped each other's moral and political makeup. What are each other's formative life experiences that have shaped the foundation of e- our respective lenses? We're going to uh, practice reconstructing each other's thinking by um, by learning communication skills for collaborative conversations across disagreement. And we're going to really talk to each other and take each other in. When we have decisions to make, either about our vision statement as a community or about um, what issues we are going to take a stand on, um, we're going to make sure that we do we do deliberation and input forums in which people sit at tables. This is not the only way this can be accomplished, but it's one example. Um, there can be an ambitious process where 350 people sit in roundtable discussions and say, we have this contentious policy decision before our community and every voice in our community needs to be heard through written input and, and verbal input as part of the decision-making process, which isn't a referendum or a vote. Um, the, you know, the, the leaders of the community can still be making decisions. But but every person has to feel like they, they were honored and they were part of the process. So these are really concrete ways, you know, a kind of concrete toolkit through which um, we can honor the conservative minority, the dissenting voice. Um, or, you know, in many communities around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that the minority voice or the dissenting voice is on the left. And right. all of the same right. toolkit applies to, um, to really honoring those who are coming at things differently in our community. But I, I, I'll tell you a story. That's related to to this, um, and because it's really indicative of of where a lot of a lot of uh, more progressive and I find uh, reform liberal communities are at. Um, there was a congregation that we worked with, and they had this narrative about themselves that the conservatives were these kind of interlopers who had um, like joined their community when the neighborhood changed. And um, which is this is very common, you know, (laughs) but they really had this sense of like, this is a progressive island where we we have to take moral stands in this historical moment. This is not a time for moral neutrality. And if 80 percent or if 75 percent of us agree, then we have to be able to live out our conscience and and do to, you know, do important things in this moment in time and be a beacon, etc. They really had a sense. This was our identity as a community. And um, and we don't want this this small vocal minority or noisy minority to be holding us back. They were making a lot of assumptions, untested hypotheses about who their community was. Mm. We did a community survey and we found that uh, 33 percent of the community identified as conservative um, and another like 10, 15 percent identified as moderate, not as um, liberal or left. So already they had some sense just from that statistic. Oh, there's this is bigger than we thought. But when they cross-tabulated that thirty-three to forty percent with who came to services most often, who were most active in their community, uh, they found that if you if you look at who's showing up at, at in shul on Saturday mornings, they were getting closer to fifty percent. And then they cross-tabulated it with how long people had been members of the synagogue, and they found it far from being you know newcomers who were somehow interlopers disrupting the narrative. These were people who'd been part of the community for 30 or 40 years. So it, it was really important to test those hypotheses and to, th- to see we're not exactly who we thought we were, and we still might want to take positions, um, strong and clear moral positions on things, but we have to do it in a way that is... Uh, that stays in relationship and truly is honoring to uh, the the diversity that we have here, the ideological diversity that we have here that we haven't made any room for.
0: I want to close with asking you about um, the applications of this for a wider population. Any American who's paying minimal attention right now understands that there's comparable polarization in our society at every level, you know, neighborly, family, legislatively, etc., um and it seems like this type of work is um awfully needed. Yeah. Um I, I would say urgent. So uh, does do you guys have um strategic goals? Are you thinking about uh broader different directions or are you really uh, focusing on what you have made into your marketplace now?
1: So there is a whole exploding ecosystem, actually, um, around uh, doing this work in um, across red-blue divides yeah. in America today right. um, that really like, was put in motion in the aftermath of the 2016 election. There were a few things before then. Um but uh, like there's a whole world of innovation that 's happening now that 's very exciting, you know, almost a kind of nascent movement, though it 's very still disorganized because things are popping up all the time right. we um We are in that space we have uh, we are not only doing work in the Jewish world any longer ah, okay and um i I will say that the 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 most exciting initiatives in that space are people who had been doing this work internationally or had been doing it in some niche way and had something very developed. And then kind of looked around them in 2016 and said, okay, we have to, this has to have broader applicability, which was true for us as well. And so we launched a Red Blue initiative uh, and rural urban initiative in 2017. It's still a small part of what we do. Having the impact that we've had in the American Jewish community is much harder at the scale at which we work. Like we impact about 5,000 people a year face to face. And so we've taken, we started taking things in new directions in the Red Blue Divides work. Um, To get to scale, so one of those is training journalists. We actually have started um, uh, training journalists to be societal mediators and translators to be able to more accurately reflect disparate parties and name differences among them in ways that everybody could say, "Oh yeah, like I'm actually this is not a distortion of me," and that this is going to translate me to the people who don't understand me, and now others will will be you know be able to rather than journalists being a party to conflict. We're doing a um, training for all of Buzzfeed's newsroom next month. Actually, oh, wow, cool. And nice. uh, and we did a, a training for journalists, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists last year that created a lot of ripples, actually. And we are experimenting with documentary filmmaking. Whoa, um, so we're, we're cool. making our first. Yeah, we're making our first docu Movie stars.
0: Um, so I got nice, you know, nice. it's a,
1: it's all experimental. Um, it's kind of Good. like our, our entrepreneurial hatcheries to see if we can get the same impacts that we get among people face-to-face in a room in these other ways.
0: Well, thank you so much for your work at Resetting the Table, and thank you for joining me. It was a delightful conversation, and I learned a lot, and it was yeah. really a, a pleasure to get to know you.
1: It was a pleasure to, to be in this conversation with you. I learned a lot, too.
0: You've been listening to the College Commons Podcast, produced and edited by Jennifer Howd and brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. For this URJ Biennial Series, special thanks to Mark Palavin, the URJ Chief Program Officer and Biennial Director, and Liz Grumbacher, Director of North American Events. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.